The Blasian Sensation is back! I'm Jalian Yang, Ja for short. I'll explain <laughs> later. Last season, I was going by Karen. It's still me. People change their names. It happens. I'm Treasure Shields Redmond. Same name, same mission to hold space for the voices that mainstream media ignores. Who Raised You podcast is back, baby. And better than ever. We're the 2018-2019 <laughs> startup competition winners for the Arts and Education Council of St. Louis. They gave us $10,000 and office space <laughs> to transform the Who Raised You podcast into the Who Raised You listening collective. This year, we're creating a digital audio archive to combat our region's historical amnesia. We're bringing together artists, poets, and changemakers of all kinds to record stories of ordinary wisdom. Stories by citizen sound agents. Coming yes. to a city near you. Stay tuned at whoraisedyoupodcast.com. In the meantime, enjoy season two of Who Raised You Podcast, a traveling conversation between Jalian Yang and Treasure Shields Redmond as we explore how culture, family, and intersecting identities pave our way toward liberation. We want to know... Who raised you? Dig deep. We're finding our roots. My name is Aaron Coleman, and the title of this poem is On Acquiescence. We were crossing town again on the bus. Our point guard, who could never sit still or be still, said, playing with my money is like playing with my emotions between his teeth. He leaned into the aisle, mimicking Big Worm's anger we'd watched on TV. My teammate and I shared more than the same name. All of us slapped seats with laughter, barely understanding, on the bus, crossing town in ties and slacks, heading to our JV game. After school, but before the match, I had wanted to say, don't play to a girl I smiled with too much in her white-on-white volleyball knee-highs and skin, down in the empty, late, after-school classroom, both of us too borderline, looking at each other as if lost in the angles of blinds and skin and dusk. I was never quite sure about her touch. Metal detecting fingertips seeking shrapnel, we held something quiet. We crossed town, off the bus, chins up, another contest, away, rarely smiling, undressing and changing into uniform. I remembered her hands, put mine where she put hers on my body. A boy said, and you know this man. We laughed and talked shit when what we wanted to do was understand. I remember the fist of the boy with my name when he, hot-headed and light-skinned, cut across the court, breakneck toward the white man, hurling slurs from the front row of his home game, fourth quarter, seeing a tall, blonde son, maybe his, knocked onto hardwood, the perennial black versus white school rivalry. When my name streaked towards the bleachers, reached for the screaming white man, our black feathers rustled like midnight peacocks claiming our cage, the polished floor. We were cross town. We were off the bus. We weren't safe. Not while playing away or sweat soaked inside patent leather Jordans, toes 
clenched like talons, cursing with our bodies under the buzzer's horn, straining to empty what gets stuck in hands, weapons that clutch torsos and throats hummed in muscle, flexed shut. Off at this distance, I hold less noise and more silence. But what if we are made of this violence? podcast is back at my old kitchen table. This is a conversation we recorded with Michael Addy, a liberation theologian based in St. Louis. We thought this was a good episode to prepare us before we travel to Oakland for the next one on Beyonce Theology with renowned Facebook statistician and worship facilitator Marvin K. White. Prepare to drool. Today, we're joined by Mike Addy. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yeah, that's, that's Mike right. Addy. He's a liberation theologian dedicated to justice, reimagining the world using a hermeneutic of resistance and suspicion to uplift the oppressed. That is so great. <laughs> he told us before the show, that's my Twitter bio. Right. <laughs> and I think people put all sorts of things on their Twitter bio. But this, yeah. I feel like it just really encapsulates who you are and what you're about doing yeah. this, in this world. It's not like dog lover lives in St. Louis. Oh, right. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Mike, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad to be here too, Karen. You're one of my favorite friends. Oh, my and goodness. also, I hope I can consider you family because yes. I feel very close to you. I feel close to you too. Um, so <laughs> actually, I was thinking about our friendship the other day, uh, mm-hmm. just because when Treasure and I were talking about what episodes we want on our, on our podcast, we said soul food. We should talk about soul food. Because mm-hmm. food's really important to me, and um, you know, there's so much about soul food that takes food to a whole other level, right? right. It's like right. culture, it's comfort. And then I was thinking, like, who who could be good for this podcast? And then you and I went on this amazing road trip uh, to see our friend Melissa get married. Right. And then we talked about soul food and all the things it can mean. And then all the amazing stories that you have in your family. And you have some unique intersecting cultures there, too. I do. I do. Really? Yeah. And um, I'm excited because me and Mike had a bunch of conversation. And then Treasure, you called in a little bit just to talk about something. Mm-hmm. And then I found out that you will both know each other. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for you to be able to just hear more about what we chatted about and for us to kind of get more into what is soul food, that would be really great. Right. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> So, um, and, and the other part of it is I realized that soul food is a really good way of describing our friendship because yes. um, just before we started recording, we were talking about how, like, you've cooked for me so many times, yep. and that has made me feel the most loved. Um, there, <laughs> there, there are things in your life that make you feel loved, and then right. there are things in your life that you know for sure without a doubt that you're loved. Mm-hmm. And so every time I've been over to your place or when we've been in the same space and there's been some food involved and you've had a hand in that, I've always felt really good about it. That's awesome. <laughs> and then the soul part. We met in seminary. Right, and right, we right. studied Asian the- theologies together. Yep. And so there's something about 
talking about different ways of um, looking at the world and how you understand things being sacred and all that, that really helps you get to know a person. Yeah. Yay. So, um, treasure. Yes. Will you start us off with our famous question? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Michael, who raised you? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Big question. You, you had to know this was coming. Right, right. So, so um, I was raised by um, uh, almost a myriad of people uh, because I don't think that I'm most definitely a believer in that it takes uh, a village to really rear a child, to really raise a child mm-hmm. up. But mm-hmm. um, my, my mom... My grandmother, my aunts, my uncles, uh, both sides of my family um, were really um, important to who I am. But outside of them, there are other people who uh, took me under their wing and made me family, mm-hmm. uh, who, who taught me and continue to teach me, uh, to mm-hmm. raise me. And I don't think that it ever really stops. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I've got, you just have to pick one of these people who have taught me, who have raised me, who have created me, who have made me into who I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if that answers the it question. Does. It really <laughs> yeah. does. What, what you all can't see is that when he was talking about all the different people that have raised him, um, Mike was like moving his hands around. Like yeah. it was like, it was like a constellation. Right. Maybe I'm just leaving right. that right. because of no. the clips, but it was like you have a constellation right. of people. Right. And there's these who stars are, yeah. who have lit up my life. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, you know what, that makes me want to tie it into the soul food thing because as you were talking about all the people, I was also thinking about dishes. Mm. You know how you can have several dishes on the table. Right. So sometimes our our rearing experience is like this person was spicy, this this person was salty, this person was sweet. <laughs> Some right. people are really salty. Right. 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 Was bitter. You know right. what I'm right. saying? Right. So what what particular memories do you have around food and those people who raised you? Right. So um, my 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 mother's mother, she was a cook in a restaurant. So she was like a professional oh, wow. cook. Um, so I just remember sit- many days sitting on a kitchen stool. You know those old kitchen stools mm-hmm. that kind of sit a little high and they were like stepping stools? Mm-hmm. So we would sit there and I would just sit there at the counter and watch her work with her hands. And she in never... In the restaurant or in no, the house? No, in, in the house. In okay. the house. Uh, so she would whip up things like out of nothing, she would make biscuits and gravy and Ooh. all these, all these different things. But then my other grandmother on my father's side, uh, she she was more simple in her cooking. Like she <laughs> she she was she wasn't as detailed or stressful mm-hmm. on the uh, ingredients. So she'd make some spaghetti, but it would be real simple, like real simple tomato sauce, a real simple dressing. And so you know, there are moments when I crave those flavors and I'm like how does she do that so then I try mm-hmm. to recreate it um, then I have an aunt who uh, was who is Korean and so she brought into our family this Asian 
fusion kind of Korean vibe. And so you have my grandmother, who was most definitely a Southern kind of from the rural areas of Oklahoma, who was this kind of Southern cook, but also had a high end. So like there were times when my grandmother would bring quail home oh. and cook quail mm. for us, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where, so, where did she bring it home from? Though? Where, wherever she bought okay. it from. She might have bought it from the restaurant. I don't, I'm not sure. But she would bring quail home. But then my, but this, you have this, 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 this mixture of these different understandings of food. And at the, my grandmother learned how to fry rice. Mm. Right? From so Anquan? From Anquan. Oh right. my gosh. So we called it om rice. That's what we called it, om rice. And oh so it had, she would throw potato, chop tiny bits of potatoes and carrots in the fried rice. Mm. And so, uh, we have, uh, black bean noodles. So uh-huh. noodles yeah. with a black bean mm-hmm. paste. My grandmother knew how to cook this. She learned how to cook these things from my Aunt Quan. And my Aunt Quan, in turn, learned how to cook some of this soul food uh, that my grandmother cooked. So we had this exchange. And then I had one mm-hmm. uncle who was married to a German lady um, years ago. I can't remember the lady's name, but they're not together anymore. But she introduced us to this kind of cabbage and tomato and beef kind of stew mm. that we still cook, we still eat in our family today. Mm. So it's kind of like an amalgamation of culture here. So when you say soul food for me, uh, it, it can be spelled S O U L or S E O. Right. Yes. You know, I'm thinking about how the festival. Festival of Nations is coming up this weekend, mm-hmm. and that's a that's a weekend in St. Louis where um, there's just a bunch of booths um, with food from all different countries, and it's a really popular festival. Like people come out for it just as much as they come out for Food Truck Fridays. They come out to yeah. the Festival of Nations in Tower Grove Park. So I'm curious about. So some people think food is this very like uniting thing, right? It obviously is. It brings people together. So what do you think about the power that food has to bring people together? And then also, what are its limitations? That's a good question. Well, you know, I think um, people, we, it is part of who we are. It's part of being human beings. It's part of being creation that you have to uh, provide yourself with nourishment. So if you can, I remember years ago I did an internship in uh, Israel and we were in the Golan Heights and uh, I sit down at this uh, this table with this Arab family and they served up this wonderful spread of food and in that moment there was not any political strife all the political differences all of the cultural differences went away mm. when we sat down at that table on mm. the floor and ate this food. So mm-hmm. food has a way of transcending because it's something that we all need, that we all have to have. So when, so even if you have the, the meagerest, and these people weren't rich, so but somehow they managed to lay out a spread for us that was just so beautiful, so welcoming. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what how food unites us, right? That's the way it unites. And then we also understand that food insecurity mm-hmm. uh, creates havoc and destruction in communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would it look like if we could feed the whole world? 
Mm-hmm. And so my so being a theologian, I, I believe uh, of operating out of abundance. And my grandmother, mm-hmm. uh, whenever she would cook, there was always more than enough. Mm-hmm. Right. So I've, I've taken that on that whenever I provide or lay out food for anybody, mm-hmm. I'd rather have more than enough and then send you home with something mm-hmm. than yep. have too little and mm-hmm. someone go hungry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's about considering everybody at the table. That reminds me of this phrase I heard once, um, scruffy hospitality, that you don't always have to have everything together. That's okay. why, like, at my little kitchen <laughs> right, table right. in my one bedroom, right. I have, like, you know, chopped up fruits and veggies and I have right. some, maybe some PB, uh, peanut butter and some bread. Uh, Treasure's taking a picture of it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really helped me to know that, like, I can invite people over even if I feel like I don't have everything together. Right. Like, it's okay. And us getting together is the point. Right, and raisinets, which I love. Raisinets, yes, thank you, Treasure. I'm going to take one. And Yum. Raisinets, which I love. And raisinets and smoked gouda, those are my two new go to things. <laughs> together. Right, together. No. Right, together. Right, right. right. I, you know, I'm really fascinated by your Korean aunts. Was this your mother's brother's wife? Right, so my mother's. My uncle, which is my mother's brother, mm-hmm. um, was stationed in Korea in mm-hmm. the 70s. Mm-hmm. And when he came home, he had married a Korean woman. Her mm-hmm. name was uh, Chung Hee. Okay. Uh, and we call her Aunt Kwan. And so they were married, and uh, well, my uncle has pa- passed on a couple of years ago. Uh, but Aunt Kwan introduced our family to things that we had never eaten, like ramen noodles. Mm-hmm. You know, now nowadays, ramen noodles are everywhere. Like, mm-hmm. they got shops for ramen now. But mm-hmm. but my Aunt Kwan specifically introduced our family. We had never eaten ramen noodles. And she introduced our family to ramen noodles. And then she just, it wasn't just regular ramen, though. It was right. like scallions mm-hmm. and egg and mm-hmm. some type That's of protein uh, mm-hmm. she had put into it. And uh, But the one thing that she introduced me to uh, that I love and still love today is kimchi. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was, she made her own kimchi. It was hot. It was spicy. I loved it with just plain white rice and kimchi. Like mm-hmm. I can do that anytime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, my Korean eyes. So she, she has brought this whole mix and this whole love in my life of uh, Asian food. Mm-hmm. Like we, like we grew up eating seaweed chips, dried seaweed, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. dried fish, octopus, mm-hmm. Korean hot sauce. Like she'd make this Korean hot sauce and uh, we would just dip the octopus and she would clean herself. Mm-hmm. And so this is what we grew up on. That's mm-hmm. along with black eyed peas, collard greens, butter beans, butter beans. <laughs> <laughs> right. All of those things. So it was this mixture of everything and incredible. Then, yeah, so it, it left me understanding that the world was this big place mm. where there were people who ate things like tiny dried fish <laughs> and, yeah. and octopus, right? Mm-hmm. At a young age. So I've never I've been fearless mm. about mm. food and trying something, trying different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm I'm also struck by the fact that your uncle went there in a military capacity. Yeah. So, you know, I have to yeah. take it to the social justice kind of mm-hmm. yeah. angle. But, you know, the U.S.'s project around the world right. 
is to be in a continual fight by proxy right. with China and Russia. Mm-hmm. And right. so other places become the go-between with that Cuba. It's not really a fight with Cuba. It's right. really a fight with China and Russia. Right. It's not really a fight with Korea. It's really a fight with China and Russia, right? And I think it's so fascinating that under the aegis of empire building, he brought back this love. And then right. it kind of grew in you all's family and caused all these interesting intersections and touch points and everything. Yeah. And and it's so interesting because we got this whole conflict going on with uh, North Korea right now Mm -hmm. um, that I wish that if Donald Trump and uh, their leader could sit down to a bowl of rice and kimchi or something. Mm. (laughs) Maybe, maybe, maybe the world would, maybe the world would be a different place. Um, You know, my my Aunt Kwan, bless her heart, she's the sweetest lady I know. Um, You know, she, the unfortunate part of her story is that she left Korea over 30 years ago and has not been back. So my uncle was supposed to take her back shortly after they got married and left, but he never did. And so she has not seen her family and uh, her siblings and for many, many years. And so I've been talking to my cousins about we need to get tickets and we need to take her back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, it just broke my heart when we sit down at her kitchen table right around the time my uncle passed. <clears throat> and she was just, excuse me, she was just telling me how, you know, I was asking her, well, Aquan, who's your family? How many sisters do you have? How many brothers? Because, you know, when we were growing up, kids don't think about the implications of that. Uh, that for her soul, mm-hmm. for her soul food, mm-hmm. uh, you know, needing to get back in touch mm-hmm. with her family. She told me that she started buying Korean tapes at the Korean grocer so that she could hold on to her language mm. and keep in, con- keep in touch with her culture. Uh, and so I don't think that we understand the implications of, of uh, you know, moving and not being able to go back and get in contact with those things that feed our soul. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And and could you share what she said to you in response for asking that? Oh, she, yeah. So she was like, she was like, you're my real son because my children have never really asked about that side of my family. And so she was like, you're my real son. And then she, she went to the refrigerator and pulled out some, uh, Sweet potato noodles. <laughs> <laughs> it's a reward. Right, right, right. She pulled out some For being sweet, a decent right. She pulled out some sweet potato noodles and some dried fish that she had sauteed with a little soy <laughs> soy sauce and coco gin and mm-hmm. uh, scallions and said, "Here, try this." And then she just started pulling stuff out. Try mm-hmm. this. Try this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of her. That's her love language. People love that book. That's really <laughs> her love yes. language is cooking and food. So. I, well, I just want to say that she's due an incredible Skype session with those siblings, and it is up to those sons to arrange that, to call the ancient ones and the young ones, and tell them to get around the computer and do the Skype session. Yeah, we got to do it, but we have to, we first have to even find them. Mm. So, you know, part of the issue is, is that my cousins, none of us really speak Korean, Uh, Mm. and so... We gotta figure out how do we go about making this happen. So mm-hmm. we know what region she's from. She knows where she used to live. So we 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 gonna get it worked out mm-hmm. though, because Anquan needs to return to Korea. She has to she has to go back to where she began to. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, it's important to us. Well, it's important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. So, uh, Quan's love language is food, but it sounds like your love language might be food too and cooking for people. It is. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of my love languages, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we, so whenever I cook for people, um, it is for me a labor of love. It is a matter of love. If you if you ever ate something from somebody cooked for you and they normally cook up pretty good, but then you ate something from them one day when they was having a bad day and it was absolutely terrible. <laughs> These <laughs> things happen. Right. Because <laughs> because when we are cooking for people that we love and we care for, we pour our love and our spirit into it. When I go to the grocery store, if the food handler is throwing my food around, I stop. Mm. And I stopped and like I, this one older lady, she was just tossing my vegetables, tossing. And I said, ma'am, please stop. Please don't throw my food because you transfer, you're transferring your energy into a food that I need for my nourishment. Mm. And I would not do your food like that. So I, I don't, I'm not sure what's going on with you today. I'm sorry if, if you, something upset you, but if you wouldn't mind, just handle my food with a little bit more care. Because it's important to me, this idea of radical hospitality. Mm. And that's what my grandmother, when I was growing up, my grandmother mm. fed the neighborhood. Mm. You know, and then mm. when people had people who passed, the neighborhood would bring pots. You see Miss Jones from down the street carrying a pot mm-hmm. with a handle to my grandmother's house mm-hmm. when my great grandmother passed. And so she fed the neighborhood, but she always did it with love. Everything. I can, we were not rich by any means, mm-hmm. but everything we ate tasted like we were. Mm. So if I had to say uh, what food tasted like, it tasted like we, like we were eating filet mignon and caviar every <laughs> meal, <laughs> right? Because it was so rich mm-hmm. and she had poured so much love into it, mm-hmm. even in the process, even in the process of cooking it. You could tell that there was love in every biscuit that she rolled out mm-hmm. and every piece of chicken that she fried in her cast iron skillet. Yes, some cast iron skillet. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, there's something about the seasoning of a really old cast iron skillet. My cousin and I were talking about my grandmother's French fries. We're just talking about French fries. Just hand cut ash potatoes, <laughs> as she called them, some ash potatoes. And um, those French fries were extraordinary. Right. They didn't taste like normal French fries. Right. Or at least not like fast food. French right. Fries. And they were delicious. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And which brings me to another memory of my uncle. This is before I was born. My grandmother was the primary parent in my family because my mother was mentally ill. Mm. So when my mother had me, she just came home to live with her mother. And that was the same project apartment they had been raised in. My grandmother was made. But my grandmother uh, was from ultra rural Mississippi, and then she moved to just the the town. That was her big move from the county to the town. <laughs> and uh, she did not just, she just didn't get fast food. It right. just didn't make sense to her. Financially, it didn't make sense. It just, when she could buy dry beans, rice, you know, right. buy those right. those butter beans, like you said. And my uncle remembers when they were little, him, my mother, and my aunt, being so jealous of the other mothers who worked, who would have a lot of 
cold cuts and canned things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because it just seemed so exotic and cool to them. And those kids would come to their house like, oh, your mama cooking? We hadn't seen the stove turned on in a while, you know, that sort of thing. So you're right. There is something singularly hospitable about turning on those burners for people. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. I still haven't figured out how to make my grandma's cornbread, though. Mm. (laughs) Did she have one of those old stoves with the fire at the bottom? At the bottom. When she was bringing Put it in there and kind of crisp it on the top a little bit. Yeah, she would. Yeah, after she she would bake it and then she would take it out and brown it underneath brown it. Brown it under yeah. there. Mm. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> that is that is that is yeah. most definitely it. <laughs> My aunt had woks. She had huge woks that she mm-hmm. would use and cook cook with. And I would sit over there and watch her fry up some stuff. Like she loved. She would make um bulgogi. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of mm-hmm. like a Korean barbecue. Mm-hmm. It's like thinly sliced Plus beef marinated in like a marinade that includes like it's made with pears, which is what makes it really tender. But then it's got I don't know if what it is like soy, soy sauce, sauce yeah. garlic. Right. It's kind of close yeah. to teriyaki in my right. opinion. Yeah, right. it's close. So she would make bulgogi, but she wouldn't grill it. She would make it and she would fry it up, and then she would. Add carrots and onion, green onions and yellow onions to it, mm-hmm. and uh, she would serve that with rice. And so we put it over rice. She'd make a huge pot of that, mm-hmm. and so our family loved it. And then my mother loves her uh, mandu, uh, and she called it. Uh, my mother calls it yaki mandu. She loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so my mother would have her women's church meeting at her house, and my she would ask my aunt to make some mandu for her church. Friends. Mm-hmm. And so my mom would make these handmade mandus, these dumplings, and they would fry them up and they would be crispy and just absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, that hospitality, you know, is just kind of strong all the way through there. And even uh, my other grandmother would go and pick wild onions in the country. When mm-hmm. I would go there in the summer, I would go to the country in the summer to see mm-hmm. my father's mother. And she was, was this Oklahoma? This or was Oklahoma. Missouri? This was Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Okay. Right. So both sides of my family are from Oklahoma in a little small town called Shakota. And uh she would go, she would say, Go with your cousin and, and go pick wild onions. Mm-hmm. And so we would go and my cousin was like, That that's a wild onion and we we'd be in fields in the country digging up wild onions. You're mm-hmm. forging, yeah. Right, forging, right? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. right, forging the food, digging up wild onions and poke salad. Yeah. Right, and poke salad. So you would find <laughs> poke salad in the city. So my grandmother had poke salad in her backyard and she mm-hmm. would go out in the city and pick it. Mm-hmm. And she'd take these wild onions and wash them and clean them and uh, then she'd fry them up and saute them with eggs and you would just mm-hmm. be in heaven. It's like the sweetest <laughs> thing, sweetest onion that you ever ate growing mm-hmm. wild. Right. So so when we say that there's not enough, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when we say that there's not enough for children to be fed, mm-hmm. for the hungry to be fed, what are we saying to God and to the world? Mm. What are we saying about God when we say that there's not enough? And that's what drives me. That's what drives my passion of hospitality and food and and pouring all that I have. And Karen will tell you, I, and I gotta mm-hmm. have you over treasure too. When I, when I, when I cook, like, I, I cook. Yes, you do have to have me over. <laughs> when I cook, 
baby, I cook. Mm-hmm. You know, and I tell people, you come, I, I have to go containers because I want you to take something home because I need you to know that you have been cared for mm-hmm. in this place. Mm-hmm. This space that we're in, you care for, and then when you go home, you also care for. So mm-hmm. it just extends beyond just my walls, but into the world, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. When when Mike last said that um, when we were on our road trip to see Melissa get married, uh, we were driving through cornfields, just fields and fields of corn, because we were going to Iowa, mm-hmm. and it just made that point so much more apparent. Like there is abundance um, now. Who decides what food is being grown and where it goes to? Mm-hmm. If it's being used for fuel or or food or mm-hmm. you know who's being subsidized by that that's all other right. other stuff um so i'm interested to hear about how that um how that plays with your work in politics and also your work in the church um cuz we just mm-hmm. had Bertini on um and we talked to Bertini and she said that her work in faith-based organizing is strategic it's it's not always been a place that she's wanted to be, but those are people that she feels that she needs to be working with. Right. Yes. <laughs> it, there's a whole story behind that pause. No, <laughs> um, because I I work for you know MCU Metropolitan Congregation United. Bertini used to work for MCU until recently, and where they have me working is in St. Charles County. And it's challenging. <laughs> so let's give our listeners a little context. Yep. So um, after the murder of Michael Brown, a spotlight was shined on this area, on the St. Louis metropolitan. And in one article, they said that the county system looked like someone had shattered a base mm-hmm. because there were all these little mini cities, mini municipalities. And when you follow the history back, it all well, m- largely has to do with white flight mm-hmm. and blight um, and the migration of funds out further and further west of the city. So St. Charles is? It's, it's west of St. Louis County. It's across the river. The Missouri River divides St. Charles and St. Louis mm-hmm. County. Mm-hmm. And what makes it difficult? Uh, because it is, like you said, it is the area where a lot of the uh, white flight occurred. They ran to St. Charles County. Although there were black, there is a, a historic black population mm-hmm. that has been in St. Charles for, you know, decades, all the way back to pre-Civil War. There was a black, you know, community there. Uh, but the majority of the people came from South City, North City, and North County. A lot of them, not the majority, but a lot of them did. And so that was a place where they ran to to get away from black folks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for the most part, St. Charles is about 90% or more white and about 7% African American and about 3% other. Okay. Um, And so... Uh, you know, organizing uh, faith-based organizations and churches, that's what we primarily, we work with congregations mm-hmm. uh, who are very homogeneous, uh, who don't necessarily have to face or have never experienced the oppression of being a minority 
uh, in dealing with a, a, a policing or an educational system that um, tends to segregate and create disparity between minority students. Mm -hmm. So they never had to experience that. And so um, to get them engaged in the work of justice uh, sometimes is challenging because they don't have that connection. They'll never know what it's like to be an African-American woman raising an African-American son mm -hmm. or an Asian woman raising an Asian son mm -hmm. uh, and having to send them out into the world to navigate the pitfalls of internal bias, racial bias, oppression, mm -hmm. all those things. So at times, I'm the only black person in the space. Mm -hmm. And I have to um, hold, hold them to some truths but at the same time, be very cognizant of where I am and that the things that come out of my mouth um, uh, can adversely impact the work that we're doing mm -hmm. because of, you know, I hate to use the term white fragility. Yeah, but <laughs> it's it's, but, it's a it's a studied phrase. Look it up. Right. Robin D'Angelo, right. I believe, is a scholar. Right. Uh, so. Right, mm -hmm. so because of white fragility, mm -hmm. and these are well-meaning Christian white folks mm -hmm. who really are sincerely, I believe, sincerely want to make changes in their community, but oftentimes we have to be able to get in contact with who we are on a on a deeper level, mm -hmm. so that when we recognize our biases, that we are able to deal with them. And sometimes they're not ready to really see the bias that they hold. And these are people who I consider allies, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? But even as an ally, you 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 have some biases. And, if, and as an African-American person, I have biases. Mm -hmm. But the question is, when my biases come to the forefront, mm -hmm. how do I then deal with them, acknowledge them, and then say, I got to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's part of the difficulty, because it's real easy for me to say something that is truth and they will get turned off and then shut down and then the work stops. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I constantly have to come back to my space and release the tension that I have built up because I'm working in the space with people who don't really have a hard time getting it. Mm -hmm. They see the wrong in it, but the way they want to go about it is, you know, well, let's ask the police chief, you know, what can we do to help them? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, these are the questions. <laughs> Trying to put her head in her hand. Like, oh, my right. God. Right. <laughs> these are the types of things that they, you know, they see it as, well, these are not, um, these people are good people, so we want to help them uh, make the community better and not really understanding that uh, racism is a system mm -hmm. and that we are all caught up in it. Mm -hmm. the, the only difference is what role are you choosing to play in that system? Mm -hmm. now, either you can try to break out the system and break it and end it or you can play into it mm -hmm. and allow the system to continue to use us over and over again. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult at times working in St. Charles, but there are moments when God shows up mm. and you see 
the light bulb come on and you say, okay, God, I see you. I can go on another day. Okay. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of veer off in two directions. Okay. One. <laughs> I'm ready. One side of the road, I wanted to know what exactly you do as an organizer in St. Charles. Okay. And then on the other side of the road, when Karen said much of the work of organizing is strategic. For instance, um, King's suit was strategic. He was mm-hmm. probably much more comfortable in whatever the leisure wear was of the day. Right. Um, but he knew he had to show up in his fedora, his suit, you know, pressed, right. suited, booted, smelling good right. because of the politics of respectability. And then that now said, today. That said, now <laughs> we can hear you. We can yeah. hear you now. Right. Right. Um, and then, so I would like to know, what is it about you, your gender presentation, your accent, your carriage? That made MCU strategically place you in a majority white place to organize. That's a good question, <laughs> um, and 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 I think that we still, I still, have, we still have to be strategic. Mm. Um, well, I replaced a, an organizer who was African American. Well, we started organizing out there around um, sacred conversations on race. Mm. So. Uh, it was a program that MCU had that kind of went into congregations and worked with them around uh, privilege, white privilege, and the Delmar divide and issues of race to open up and begin these conversations. Mm-hmm. So we added on and action. So when I came in, they had done the second conversations, and now they were ready to move to action. Mm-hmm. Now, when I go out to St. Charles, I usually do uh, – you know, I have to, I put on some slacks, dress shoes, because we still, I recognize that this is a community that still has, you know, some of those meta narratives about who black people are mm-hmm. uh, that still resonate. So I always go out there putting forth the best mic that I can, because I'm really a laid back kind of comfortable person, but I do it because it, I have to do it. Mm-hmm. So my language, my, um, you know, we, we, we code switch, mm-hmm. you know, as a minority, you know, yeah. can you understand, you understand that we, we live in the hyphen. Mm-hmm. We live in the black Asian dash American. Mm-hmm. So we are, we are not completely one for African-Americans. We are not completely African nor are we completely American. Mm-hmm. So we're somewhere in between. Because mm-hmm. there's an assumption about who actually counts as an American. Right, right, mm-hmm. right, right. So we live in this hyphen, so we have to code switch. Um, and when you find yourself, all my life, when I was going to private school, when I was uh, going to university, when I went into the workplace, I found myself as being that one black person in those spaces. Mm. In white spaces. Mm -hmm. So I had to be able to um, walk with kings but not lose my common touch. Mm -hmm. That's from Ruya Kipling's Mm -hmm. formula. Um, And you have to, you have to uh, uh, not look too, not look too wise or talk too sharp, Mm -hmm. right? Because you navigate in these treacherous waters. Mm -hmm. And my objective overall is to get these people to begin to help change community 
and then change the community, change narratives, mm-hmm. and kind of face the reality of the world that they're living in. Mm. Right? That when I went to St. Charles, when I first started organizing out there, I was stopped twice. Mm-hmm. Did not get a ticket either time. Mm. They just wanted to check on it. Right. They wanted to, want to look at my car. Right, right, right. And then sit in a meeting with the chief of police for St. Charles City and hear him say that, oh, in my four years of being the chief here, I've only had one person ever come into my office and say they were stopped because they were black. Did you reveal your experience or you decided it was no, strategic no. not to? Well, no, I had. Well, actually, I had been put on. I was I was sitting in the meeting as an organizer. So mm-hmm. I was letting the leaders uh, okay. do the talking. But then one of them put me on the spot and then I told him my story. Mm-hmm. My experience, and then that's what that was his reply to my experience. Oh, okay. so it was invalidating, right? right. Like, oh. oh, that's that's out of the ordinary, right? I've that's never a, seen that before. Exactly. Right. So, mm. so well, all we need is one out of the ordinary bullet, and we did. Right. Mm. So, right. I'm just saying, you working with a community mm. who can people who can go their whole life. I had one one sweet lady came to a meeting and she said, well, I don't really, we had shown her the statistics statistics from the attorney generals about stops in St. Charles and African-Americans are three times more likely mm-hmm. uh, to get stopped. And her reply was, well, you know, I talked to my grandson, 19, he's 18 years old, high schooler, and he says, it's not about the color of your skin, the reason you get stopped. It's about the type of car you drive. Oh, dang. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> right. And so this is the this is the mentality. Mm-hmm. This is the thinking. This is the worldview of how they see the world. Now, this was a maybe a seventy five year old grandmother mm-hmm. taking advice from her seventeen year old grandson <laughs> about race relations <laughs> and police interactions with African Americans. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we have to be uh, wise as a serpent, but gentle as a dove when mm. engaging people who see the world uh, so drastically different, mm-hmm. whose experiences are so drastically different. And to bring it back to food, uh, to this idea of food, soul food, mm-hmm. what, do, what do we feed our souls? Mm. I was thinking the mm. same thing. Right? We nourish each other. You just asked, what mm-hmm. what are we feeding our souls? And interaction with each other is nourishing because the more we nourish each other, the less afraid we are of each other, the more we learn, you know, and that that is that's part of the work of justice is for us to, you know, bump up against each other more. When we remain in our silos, um, this is how a lot of what is worst in us comes out. And I want to tell a story that I experienced in a church in Webster Groves. I had joined Peace United Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. And it was the new members kind of final celebration or meeting. I was sitting around a table. At the head of the table was the pastor, a white woman, queer identified. And I was the only black person at the table that had joined this church in a suburb of St. Louis and all the white people. And 
So one of the new members had on a blue t-shirt. She was a white woman. And it said, neuter Michael Vick. <gasps> yeah, that was her new members class outfit. And so, um, <laughs> nope. so strategically, we've been talking about that strategy. Mm-hmm. Strategically, as I was boiling over with rage, really, I thought to myself, okay, I am going to address this. I am going to begin with saying I'm not angry because I know that, like you said, um, if you come off as the angry black woman, then all of a sudden everything you say is invalidated or people can't hear you. And I am going to strategically tell her not that she has made me angry, but that she has frightened me. Because part of white fragility's trump card is white tears. When they bring out the tears, all of a sudden we can't talk through the tears. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? We have to go into comfort mode. Right. So they asked, did anyone have any comments? And so I said, first of all, I'm not angry. But I have to tell you, in my community, there is a resonant history of lynching. And you wearing a T-shirt that says you want to neuter a black man reminds me of that and frightens me. And what did she do? She burst out crying. And she said, I have black children. Mm -hmm. And then people at the table got up to comfort her. (laughs) But not you. (laughs) Not you. Bell Bell Hooks calls that the uh, white girl crying in the room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And people got up to comfort her. She was unable to have a, a, a conversation with me, and I never saw her at the church again. Oh. Mm. Never saw her again. I hope she stopped wearing that t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> she might be out of St. Charles wearing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, that's an example of somebody yeah. who obviously was starved for the soul food. Mm of black interaction, black friendship, because you could not love, not authentically love somebody black and feel like it was okay to walk around with violence to black bodies as a slogan on your, on your shirt. Well, you know, she, she, um, that, that was all about the dog fighting thing, right? Exactly. And, and and it's amazing how, how many times uh, people walk around in ignorance of the things that they are saying and how they impact others. Um, and those, those biases mm-hmm. that people don't want to recognize. I had two of my leaders. One was African-American. So there are some black people in St. Charles. Okay. And so, you know, I was trying, I was pulling in this black pastor and I've known him for many years. Good man who very loves his, his congregation fellowships with another white church. Um, and I pulled him into the work. Well, the leader for our policing task force, she's very uh, technical, very concrete, very organized, which is very good. Uh, well, he came with an idea. It had been brought up before. He didn't know. She totally said, well, we've talked about that, and we decided we weren't going to do nothing about that. He felt as though she had dismissed him. He expressed that, and in a way that we do, 
as African Americans, you know, we we our voice when we feel disrespected, it's mm-hmm. a cultural thing. And our voice goes up a pitch or two. Mm-hmm. And he was he didn't jump across the table. He was just telling her in a very sincere uh, way, you know, I feel like you've been disrespecting me, that you disregarded my opinion and my input. And she took that as an attack. And so she... Right. Treasure's giving us a what? And when she came, and so because I I was diffusing the situation because he was ready to leave the meeting, and I told him I said we don't. I said even I said we're in the same work. We're all on the same side. So don't leave because if you leave, how will the work get done? Mm-hmm. So he stayed. Mm-hmm. She then goes to my boss. And tells my boss that she's upset because I didn't shut him down or take her side and that he was emotive, mm-hmm. enraged, angry. I've never been talked to like that before in my life. If it happens again, I'm done with this work. And so, you know, <laughs> so I had to, I had to, so the, the thing is, is that you have to begin to look at people um, through the lenses of, of social and cultural lenses and say you, what you really mean because it, because your bias is coming out that you've never been talked talk to by a black person come on come on that way come on preacher but <laughs> right that's what that's what she really that's meant. what it was because there was a white gentleman <laughs> who was working with him mm-hmm. and they were both on the same page and mm-hmm. at the end of the meeting the white gentleman came up he was just as angry about dealing with her. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm upset and this and this and this and I'm not having a meeting with you again, you and Mike again until I meet with my pastor. And he was just as enraged, mm-hmm. just as angry, just as upset. But she never used those terms mm-hmm. about him the way that she did about the black pastor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I began to understand that I have to be sensitive to the biases of people mm. and that I need God's grace. Mm. God has to feed me some soul food mm. so that I am <laughs> able to see bias mm-hmm. and not hold it and count it, hold it against them or recognize that they are unaware at times mm. of the bias that they are expressing. Thank you for listening to the Who Raised You podcast, a storytelling project brought to you by the Who Raised You Listening Collective, featuring media by artists of color in the St. Louis region. To support us, rate and review Who Raised You podcast on every platform. Visit WhoRaisedYouPodcast.com to book us for speaking and consulting on arts and storytelling projects. While you're on WhoRaisedYouPodcast.com, donate to support the Who Raised You Listening Collective. Put groceries on our table. We are the 2018 to 2019 Startup Competition winners brought to you by your friends at the PNC Foundation and Arts and Education Council of St. Louis. They gave us an office for this year. Podcasting from the Centene Center for the Arts. 
If you'd like to sponsor us and have us share your products and services with our audience, let's talk about it. Email us at whoraisedyoupodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to partner with you and share your story. Connect with us on social media. Like Who Raised You Podcast on Facebook. Tweet us at Who Raised You Pod on Twitter. Slide into our DMs at Who Raised You on the Gram. On the Gram. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Say hi. <laughs>